Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, and I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. The climate crisis can be difficult to cover in a way that most people can relate to. The mechanism of harm goes from a person's gas stove to the Earth's atmosphere and back again in the form of a flood or a fire. That's a more complicated story than one person punching another in the face. And that's why true stories of individuals or families experiencing the fallout of the climate crisis can be so impactful and help us relate to each other on a more direct level, the way humans naturally do, person to person. When news is important, we need news and personal stories can help drive people to action. So today we're talking with two journalists who recently won the Covering Climate Now Journalism Award for their work. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Carolyn Beeler. She covered the story of a family in Pakistan dealing with the aftermath of the historic and unbelievable level of flooding that that country experienced last year. And I remember that. I remember distinctly looking at the photos and reading some news stories and being horrified by the scope of that disaster. It was really, really shocking. I remember that, too, and being horrified by how little Pakistan has contributed to the climate crisis, and yet they're suffering terribly. And then it faded, and I'm embarrassed and sad to say it was replaced by others, the Canadian wildfires, Maui. Yeah, and I don't think it's something to be embarrassed about. I think it's the simple fact that it's overwhelming. There are just so many things happening at an increasing pace, and it can be really gut-wrenching to read the day's news. I mean, one of our producers remarked it's almost like mass shootings, where you see one and you feel the pain and anguish, and then, you know, it's replaced by the next one, and we kind of get numb to it. Now there's major flooding in Libya. Right. I've become numb to those mass shooting stories and numb to some of the climate stories. I intentionally decided not to read the Libya story for the first few days. And as we talk about all of these climate disasters, it also underscores why policies that address loss and damage are so important. Loss and damage is this idea that wealthy countries pay developing countries for the climate damage and harm that the wealthy countries have caused by burning fossil fuels for more than a century. Right, and that was a big focus at the UN Climate Conference in Egypt last year, where a fund was created to address loss and damage. That fund is yet to be funded, but we'll talk more about that a little later in the episode. And, you know, every week as we talk about what steps are needed and what folks are doing to face the climate crisis, we continue to come back to some of the same key pillars that really, to do this effectively, it involves addressing multiple things at once. Science literacy, racial and environmental justice, a just transition, the economy. There are so many factors at play here. So many things are interconnected. It really does take multitasking, which is a big part of the conversation I had with journalist, social activist, and best-selling author Naomi Klein. I'm really excited to have her on the show. She's a true thought leader, and her work has shaped the action and thinking of many influential people. Her book, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, inspired Jane Fonda to start her Fire Drill Friday climate protests in front of the U.S. Capitol. Jane Fonda will tell that story on the show next week. This week in my conversation with Naomi, I began asking her how she's personally been dealing with the climate-fueled wildfires near her community. I live in British Columbia on the uh, unceded Shishad territory on the so-called Sunshine Coast. Weirdly, it has been, uh, for us on the coast, it, we've actually had less smoke than, than many other summers, even though the interior of the province um, and the north are very, very much on fire. You know, it's all about, it's all about wind direction. The last week has been pretty hazy, um, but there have been whole months in in previous summers in in the last few years when you know we could barely see a few feet in front of us so 
where I am, we got have gotten off easy so far. Knock wood. We had a. Um, I really should knock wood because last night and early this morning we had some really terrifying lightning storms, and so we were just you know it's it's very much drought conditions. We are in stage four water restriction where I am and have been now for for weeks. And last year we were off the charts in terms of of water restrictions. It was it was a state of emergency for water where where I am, and. You know, it's a it's technically a temperate rainforest, which is one of the things that is really sort of uncanny about this moment. There was a headline last year that said, you know, the Sunshine Coast is is technically no longer a rainforest. So you're really seeing this the, the ecology flip from one thing to another. And you know, of course, the people who are really on the front lines are migrant workers, farm workers who are in a very precarious status. And when their farm, the farms where they're working shut down, they just get sent back home and this is money that they need. So, you know, we've been doing some work at the Center for Climate Justice, which I co-direct, you know, at lobbying our government to a grant. Uh, status uh, and rights to the migrant workers who have uh, not been able to do the work that they came here to do and are so vulnerable. But yeah, it's 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 a lot. And I guess Canadian fires have really gotten famous this year because the smoke reached to the center of the universe there in New York. So everyone found out what our summers are like. Right. And of course, in Northern California, we've had our own bad years. So I have empathy for you, what you're going through. And um, and for Canadians, you know, roughly a year ago, the headlines were on another disaster amplified by burning fossil fuels, the horrific flooding in Pakistan. And I'm embarrassed to say I had forgotten about Pakistan's floods or blocked them out of my mind because these disasters are coming so fast and frequently. And those images helped advance an agreement at the UN Climate Conference in Egypt, COP27, about wealthy countries paying for loss and damage that our lifestyles have inflicted on the global south. You criticized COP27 for several reasons. I'm curious what your critique of that process is. Well, I guess just backing up, the climate crisis is not the only crisis that that we humans are facing right now. We you know we really are in this moment of of overlapping and intersecting disasters that that often fuel each other, right? We have obviously a pandemic, you know, that we're just sort of slowly coming out of, but it's still in our midst where there is an equality and an injustice crisis. There is a housing crisis um where where you know you mentioned northern California, you know, I'm sure you remember what happened in the aftermath of the campfire, the Paradise Fire, where people were displaced, needed to move to neighboring communities. And then there was a big backlash against unhoused people. It led to a right-wing city council being elected in Chico. You know, so that interplay between kind of hard right and in some cases actually kind of fascist politics and the climate crisis, I think we need to look very, very closely at, right? I mean, more people were displaced by the Pakistan floods than live in Canada. I mean, it was absolutely huge. And so the climate crisis is one of the big drivers of displacement within our countries and between our countries. And one of the other crises that we're facing is surging authoritarianism. And there is no seemingly more potent weapon in the hands of authoritarian politicians than fear of the other, even if the other is in, internal within the country, but certainly if the other is, you know, a non-citizen on the border. And we're seeing that in the United States. But, you know, this relates to, I guess, the criticism that that I and many others had of the fact that we're now we now have a couple of of, of UN climate summits in extremely authoritarian countries. Um, so last year was was Egypt in Sharm el Sheikh. You know, Egypt was the the site of an extraordinary youth-led revolution in 2011. There was a brief period of hope that it was finally going to perhaps become a democracy, only for uh, for the Muslim Brotherhood to to come to power and repress and then the military to come back to power and introduce more repression than existed under the previous military dictatorship of Hosni Mubarak. So my, you know, my criticism made with others was that we are not going to make any progress when it comes to climate if we aren't forcefully defending political freedoms, right? The work of Climate scientists requires free publication. You know, it requires the ability to, to disclose your research, even when it is unflattering to governments. And it requires people being able to go out and protest and exercise their freedom of expression. It requires the ability to dissent. 
And so, yes, there was the loss and damage agreement made at, at Cop and Sharm el-Sheikh, but you know, we'll see what comes of that because it was an agreement without money attached. And I think we should be very concerned about the about rising authoritarianism, tens of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt. And now next COP is happening in the UAE where, you know, there are very, very few political freedoms. And so it becomes, you know, more and more like a weird sort of charade where I mean, cops always feel a little bit like a charade, but, you know, there's like a little pen where there's a sort of a a theme park democracy zone where people get to wave signs and say things that people in that country are not able to do, right? And so I think it's a moment where we need to push ourselves in the climate movement to draw these connections between political freedoms, authoritarianism, climate action, build real relationships of solidarity with folks on the ground. One of your other critiques, I think, is the infiltration of fossil fuel interests at the Conference of the Parties, these UN climate summits. That was a big topic of discussion last year. It's also a topic of discussion this year. How is that damaging what we know is this collective action problem where we need, we have to come together? Well, it's going into high parity now, right? I mean, it was already pretty absurd when Poland was hosting you know, and, and they were having like parallel festivals of coal, you know, alongside the the summit. But now, you know, to have an actual executive of a major oil company be the chair of the COP, as is the case for, for the UAE, I think points to really why we have been talking and talking and talking at, at you know, what is this COP 28? So that means there've been 28 of these summits and all the while emissions have been going up globally. And I'll never forget the moment when I, I you know, I was at the at, at the pivotal climate summit in Paris, and <laughs> I, I've never told the story before. But I, I, there was a protest out at the bottom of the Eiffel Tower uh, after the final agreement w- was launched, and I had to write an article. And I had my my research assistant was was back home, and we were texting, and I I was saying his name is Rajiv Sakura. Uh, he now works on the Hill, and I said like Rajiv, what does the final agreement say about fossil fuels? And Raj texted. He's like, I just did a word search. It doesn't say fossil fuels. I said, do a word search for gas. He said nothing. I said, do a word search for oil. <laughs> and I'm like, is it possible that we have a climate agreement that does not mention fossil fuels? And so that's the heart of it. I mean, how are we going to do this work if we're not able to to name the single largest contributor to the crisis? And the fact that we now have a chair of the COP, you know, who is himself a fossil fuel executive, I think just sort of perhaps it's just going to create a crisis to the extent that we now can actually surface it. I'm not going. Are you? Uh, I'm actually I'm going to go. We go and report. I was in Charm. I didn't go for a number of years, but you're right. It's It's an odd thing when it's considered a big win just to get the word coal into the document. Fossil fuel companies are infiltrating the diplomatic realm, also the academic realm. They have a lot to defend, including their support of elite research universities as climate catastrophes accelerate. That's becoming controversial. We saw a professor from Harvard Law School recently step down from the board of ConocoPhillips. There's controversy swirling around the Doris School at Sustainability at Stanford. Now there seems to be a focus on MIT. What do you think should be the role of energy companies and elite research universities? I don't think they should be in elite universities or any other universities. It's not just that they are fueling the climate crisis, it's that their money has fueled attacks on scientists over all of these years. And that, you know, they've underwritten the whole messaging machine that led to, you know, the hacking of climate scientists' emails. And so there's a, a core conflict of interest between an institution that is priding itself on standing for, you know, following research wherever it leads and defending academic freedom and being in league with these corporate actors, many of whom have been very active players in a scientific misinformation and attacks on climate scientists in particular. So I think it's a huge issue. I think it's also an issue that you have like tenured professors who, are, who, t- who take like patents out on technologies that act as greenwashing for these oil companies and then in some cases sell them to those companies. So, you know, it isn't just like funding the research. It's also uh, a business model. It's interesting because, you know, I was part of the kicking off of the fossil fuel divestment movement with my friend Bill McKibben um, when we read the Carbon Bubble Report, a stranded asset report. And I was on the board of 350 at the time. There were there were campuses like Swarthmore where there were campaigns against coal uh, investments by, by the university endowment. But there 
wasn't a national and then international fossil fuel divestment movement. And it was, you know, it was really wonderful to be part of kicking that off. I was on, you know, the Do the Math tour with, with Bill and others. And it was a real b- wonderful tool for, for organizing on campuses. That, that's one thing I will say for the fossil fuel divestment movement, including building relationships and alliances between faculty who wanted action and wanted a way to have their institutions really stand for this, their stated values. But, you know, I work in a university and University of British Columbia, and I didn't always work in the academy. I'm, I'm new to the academy just the past five years. And I'm, I'm really struck by the difference between the discourse around talking about fossil fuel funding for research and fossil fuel divestment. It's a lot easier for faculty to criticize where a university's pension fund goes or endowment goes than it is to talk about where one of their colleagues is getting their funding. Because that really, that violates like a core principle around collegiality. Yeah, mo- most professors don't interact with the university endowment. They may get some money from it, but it doesn't touch their daily job, which is the grants. And you're right, their colleagues, That now you're talking about scholarships for earth sciences and earth science departments are full of fossil fuel funding. And you're talking about, you know, your friend down the hall. You know, you're talking about people that you know, that you like, and it, it it just gets trickier. And so I think that this is a huge issue. But part of the reason why it hasn't taken off like divestment is because this sort of collegiality, which in, you know, in principle is a good thing, but not if we're self-censoring. This week, I saw a social media personality post about Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, which was published a decade ago. Then came donut economics, degrowth, post-growth. We recently did a whole episode on that. As an intellectual leader in that arena, I'm curious how you see the shape and scope of that conversation and if the Overton window, the zone of socially acceptable discourse, is expanding. You know, my answer to that depends on the day. (laughs) Uh, On my bad days, I feel like it's more possible to talk about it because there's less action, like that, that it's sort of more of kind of social media performance. The, the boundaries of acceptable discourse are expanding at a time when sort of speech itself is experiencing a sort of uh, a currency devaluation or to quote Greta Thunberg, there's just a lot of blah, blah, blah going on. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to say things if you don't plan on doing them, right? And so I think the moment we're in, and I would say that's not just about climate. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of feeling around um, racial justice that post 2020, there was just a lot of discourse, a lot of positioning, a lot of companies talking about how they stood with Black Lives Matter. But like, are we really seeing the changes? That said, I do think that discourse matters. I mean, I engage in it for a living and I do think words matter when we attach them to real actions. And I am heartened that there's more discussion around degrowth in particular, less so the sort of like uh, normalization of a critique of capitalism. Sometimes I, I, I do feel like it's almost trendy to just be like, oh, this is just like, you know, necro, necro politics, capitalism. And it's coupled with a resignation that it's just the way things are and you're not trying to change it. If it's connected with ways that people are organizing in their workplaces, in their institutions, in their neighborhoods, in their communities, trying to change those systems, whether whether they're suing big oil, whether they're demanding that their employers kick out the fossil fuel funders, I mean, that gives me hope because it means that we're connecting the discourse with action. And degrowth in particular, you know, I think it, it does start to get to the heart of the problem, which is that we have an economy that we have a definition of success that equates a healthy economy with growing consumption. And yes, you can say, oh, you can decouple growth from consumption, but we haven't done that. We haven't done that at all. You know, the extent to which it's possible, it's so marginal. You know, it doesn't mean that we can't grow. We, you know, there are parts of our economy that we absolutely need to grow as we roll out renewables, as we invest in low carbon sectors like the care economy. Um, But we have to have a much more deliberate economy where we decide based on our goals and our values where we want to grow and where we need to contract because the earth systems can't handle it. And so I am heartened by that discourse, but the challenge is always to connect it with actions in our real lives. 
You're listening to a Climate One conversation about how journalism can help make personal connections to climate impacts. If you missed a previous episode or want to hear more of Climate One's empowering conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. You listen to Climate One because you think it's valuable and you enjoy it. Chances are a friend of yours would like listening to it also. Do us a favor and send a link to this episode or any other to your friend. You can find all of our archive online at climateone.org. You can select and create playlists focused on specific subjects and share those. Coming up, how housing policy is an overlooked climate issue. In terms of who dies during these disasters, it's often inadequate housing, inadequate circulation, inadequate weatherization. That's up next. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. It's important to remember that the climate crisis is intertwined with so many other systems and crises in people's lives. And if we try to address climate in a silo separate from those other things like housing, wealth inequality, environmental racism, we don't get to the deep roots of the intertwined problems. And if we tackle all those things at once, it seems overwhelming and unsolvable. Let's get back to my conversation with best-selling author, journalist, and activist Naomi Klein. This is why it is so important in, you know, the circles where we talk about climate change a lot to remember that it, most people have a lot of different crises that they're contending with in their lives, including an affordability crisis or including a housing crisis. And if we just sort of try to lift climate out of all of that, that whole web of interlocking and intersecting crises, then we're probably going to end up with policy responses that don't take them into account, right? And so I think a lot of backlash to climate action comes from the fact that uh, a lot of climate policies are seen as increasing the cost of daily living for regular people, that their energy, that, that it is going to be just switching from fossil fuels to wind. And maybe the wind will be more expensive because we haven't challenged those ownership structures and we haven't introduced community controlled wind, which is possible to do. Denmark has done it. Um, you know, and then you have real community buy-in because the extent to which it generates profits, they stay in the community, it funds services, it creates jobs. And that's how you get like robust and sturdy buy-in. Because if you do it the other way, what you end up with is backlash. And we're seeing that in all kinds of different contexts. Right. The costs are direct and personal and immediate and the benefits are for somebody else tomorrow. You, you talk about climate justice as multitasking, which I think is a really relatable and useful term. What do you mean by that? Well, I think if we start from the premise that climate is one of multiple crises, a really big one. And I would certainly argue that all the others fit inside it because we're talking about the infrastructure in which all of life on this planet unfolds, but it's in this web. It's in this web of, of other crises. So when we design policy responses, those policy responses need to multitask, right? So where I live in Canada, many First Nations don't have adequate water, don't have clean water, don't have electricity. Um, are owed reparations for the theft of their land. And so a multitasking response to the climate crisis would say that First Nations should be first in line to own and control their own renewable energy projects. And that should include training, jobs, profits flowing to the communities. And that isn't a replacement for getting clean water and healthcare and actually respecting treaty rights and land rights. You know, another example where I live, you know, we have Pacific Northwest, but um, there is a housing crisis. It's a desirable place to live in part because of climate change, right? We've got migrants coming from California. Vancouver is, is a ridiculously unaffordable city and it's so bad and people and tenants are so vulnerable to what is called rent eviction, right? Their landlord improves their housing a little bit and they up the rent and kick them out that 
even though 600 people in British Columbia died during the heat dome in uh, 2021, there is still a lot of concern about landlords installing heat pumps um, and doing retrofits that could save lives in the next heat dome because tenants are convinced that they will be evicted in the name of green retrofits. And they're not wrong. They're not wrong. They could very well be evicted because of that. So the question, like a multitasking solution would be, how do we lower the rent and lower emissions at the same time? How do we recognize that housing is actually a human right and and really get serious about non-market housing and tenant protection? You know, I realize this doesn't sound like a climate issue, but it is a climate issue because housing is a big, big emitter. No, I totally agree. And I've tried, been trying to get climate people to talk about housing for a long time. And they think, oh, that's not why I went to school for. That's not my thing. Housing is very urban. That's these other, yeah, it's not their thing. And housing is a huge climate lever. It's just not often seen as such. Yeah, it's it's both a climate risk, right? I mean, in terms of who dies during these disasters, it's often inadequate housing, inadequate circulation, um, inadequate weatherization. But also, people will resist the changes if they're not fair, right? Like we, you know, often climate justice advocates get treated like, "Oh, you're slowing us down. You're making it more complicated. Can't we just do a carbon tax? Can't we just like make this really simple?" But that doesn't account for the backlash. Because when, when you have unjust climate policies, it's one step forward and two steps back. You have been an influential thinker on what happens after fossil amplified fires, floods and hurricanes. What is disaster capitalism and how is the disaster capitalism complex evident in Maui today? Yeah, this is what actually brought me to climate research. My first books and my early journalism was really about economic inequality and human rights, which is, you know, probably why I keep coming back to it. And in 2005, I I had just returned from Iraq and I had done some writing for Harper's about the privatization of war and occupation and reconstruction in Iraq in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion, right? Um, so casting my, our minds back, and some, some people were probably too young to remember, but it was a little bit shocking the extent to which that was a privatized endeavor, right? So yes, you had the U.S. military, but the bases were built by Halliburton and the, you know, all of the juicy reconstruction contracts were given to American companies in really sweetheart deals like Bechtel and Floor. You had the highest percentage of mercenary soldiers fighting alongside American military officers. You had Blackwater there in the theater, as they say. So I was working on this, as I said, you know, reporting on it for Harper's, and I was thinking about expanding it into a book. And then Hurricane Katrina happened. And the the photographer who I had been in Baghdad with, Andrew Stern, called me from uh, New Orleans and said, they're all here. It's Halliburton, Floor, Bechtel, Blackwater, like, like you know, one reporter described it as Baghdad on the bayou. And so that's when I started writing about the disaster capitalism complex and also something that I call the shock doctrine. So that research led to, to my 2007 book, The Shock Doctrine. And The Shock Doctrine refers to the strategy of exploiting states of shock when people are necessarily focused on the day-to-day business of staying alive, whether it's because, you know, they're under evacuation um, or their home, you know, their neighborhood is, is, is under assault, uh, military assault, and moving in so quickly, precisely because people can't be engaged in politics in a moment like that, or it's very hard to be, to push through a kind of policy wish list. So after the um, the flooding of New Orleans and after it was evacuated, it became a laboratory for, for education privatization. New Orleans is the most privatized school system in the United States uh, because public schools were shut down and reopened as charter schools. Public housing that wasn't storm damaged, but was on desirable higher ground was bulldozed and replaced with market housing. So, you know, whenever there is one of these huge disasters, I almost always get some emails from folks on the ground saying it's happening again. And I take no pleasure in this, you know, but I did hear from some colleagues in in Maui and on other islands as well. And they were telling me that it wasn't only real estate agents who were calling 
residents who had just lost their homes on, on Maui and trying to urge them to sell their ancestral homes. Ick, um, ick. But also that there had been this big victory for, for water rights right before this. And that was being rolled back under cover of emergency. So yeah, it's a pretty old playbook. It's very cynical. It happened in, in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria as well. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for The Guardian with Colada Sprout, who's a wonderful legal scholar. And she calls it plantation disaster capitalism because she wants to really underline that this is not new. This is part of a long history of resource grabbing in Hawaii. Right. The whole colonial uh, history laid the foundation for that. The very positive story out of Yasuni National Park. I know you've written about Ecuador. Does that, you know, that surprised me, honestly. I wasn't following it. Sure. Uh, did, didn't think that would happen. Does that give you hope? I mean, yes. And, the, you know, that 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 is a victory that is just decades in the making. I don't think people really understand how deep it is. The the whole concept of ecological debt, of this of the idea of there being a debt owed from north to south and to the south in the north comes from the environmental justice movement in the global south and the north, but in particular in the Niger Delta, um, where the oil fields have uh, you know, decimated so many lives um, and continue to, and in Ecuador because of the, the spoilation of, of the rainforest there. And so for a long time, there's been a lot of movement thinking about what it would mean to, to really, uh, to leave the oil in the ground, but not say, well, this is only the responsibility of some of the poorest people on the planet to keep it there, that we all benefit when that oil in the Yasuni rainforest stays underground, that that is a gift to all of humanity. And that the burden of it should not only be carried by, by those in Ecuador who made that extraordinary decision. So I would say it's a victory, but it's actually only a partial victory. They did their part by saying we want to keep it in the ground, but we still haven't done our part in the wealthier countries to push our governments to help them pay for the healthcare and other forms of poverty reduction so that there isn't then a backlash against this because it could happen. It could happen in a few years. Right. And, and the Ecuadorian government asked the international community to pay to keep that oil on the ground and no one came up with much money, but then they've Ecuadorian yep. people voted to do it anyways. As we get toward the end, hopium is a term I'm starting to hear in the climate conversation. You say you have a complicated relationship with hope. Can you tell me about hey, that? Hey, that's funny. I first used that term a long time ago. That's funny. I used it after Obama was elected mm, <laughs> on a campaign of hope. There you go. Yeah. You know, I have a complicated relationship with the term hope only because I think hope is something we earn. It isn't something we have. and I guess it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about connecting words with language. You know, I, I sometimes think that that people think that 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 it's just just almost like a commodity. Like I have hope, and I have it like like a lot of things on some days, but not on others. And the days the days when I have it, it's because. I see amazing organizing going on and there is still incredible organizing. And I see new people coming into this movement and making all of these connections and insisting on an intersectional climate movement. And that's when I think we've earned, we've earned a right to a ray of hope. Yeah. Amy Klein's a professor of climate justice at the University of British Columbia, award-winning journalist, syndicated columnist, and New York Times bestselling author of many climate books. Thank you, Naomi, for coming on Climate One. I hope we get a chance to talk again. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Greg. Take care. You're listening to a conversation about a human-centered approach to covering climate. This is Climate One. Coming up... How do you tell a story about loss and damage that makes the policy human? This family lost their house and they lost wages for several months. So would there be a way that money could flow from, for example, the global north or historical emitters to, into Pakistan and get right into the hands of these families? That's up next. Last year's UN Climate Conference in Egypt concluded with one major positive outcome, the creation of a loss and damage fund for wealthy, high-emitting countries to pay developing countries to reduce future climate impacts and adapt to the harms that will inevitably happen. 
The details are still being worked out. Some developed countries, advised by their lawyers scared about setting a precedent for liability, are looking to limit the scope and size of the fund. They're already looking to do that, which is kind of galling. But we should say that it was not a guaranteed outcome of that conference that this fund would be created. And so even rich nations acknowledging their responsibility was a big, meaningful step forward. It's been decades in the making. There's been lots of conversations about a word no one likes to use, reparations, responsibility, etc. So it was a big breakthrough. And it can be easy to think of the fund and these payments in sort of the macro country-to-country sense. But there are people all across the world right now suffering from fossil amplified disasters that they have not really contributed to in a lot of these developing countries. And they need help. They need money to recover now. Right. I looked deep into the eyes of a Nigerian climate person and felt that our lifestyles are hurting people. There's a definite moral dimension to this. In August of 2022, Pakistan suffered historic flooding. UNICEF puts the damage at around $30 billion. Carolyn Beeler, environment reporter and editor for The World, went to southern Pakistan's Sindh province to report one family's experience of the life-changing floods. Abdul Ghani's family fled to the roof of a nearby school when the floodwaters came in August. They were here on this sun-scorched spot when waves in the floodwaters whipped up by heavy winds destroyed their home. Our hearts sank, Ghani says. The house that was our shelter, our children's home, was destroyed. Ghani lived in that house with his wife and three kids, along with his seven brothers and their families. From the roof of the school, you can see one remaining room surrounded by water. This is my home. This is my home, he says, pointing to what remains. I built this house on my own, he says. No one helped me. When it fell, it was heart-wrenching. The floodwaters only receded enough for them to come down from the school roof two weeks ago. So you spent two months living on this corner here of this roof. Yeah, he says. Now they've moved off the roof and down into the school itself. Each family has one of the classrooms to sleep in and people hang out in the courtyard. Ghani's wife, Hir Mala, is squatting over a fire in the hallway, stirring a pan of stewed greens and potatoes. Their three- and five-year-old stand watching behind her as we talk. How have your kids been? Have they been healthy? The children are not healthy here, she says. But what can we do? We're helpless until we return home. Our children play in the floodwater. We try to stop them, but they won't listen. She thinks that's where her son's cough came from. Her two oldest also have malaria. Their fevers just broke yesterday. Cases tripled in this province at the height of the floods. We dream that our kids will get educated and become doctors, she says with a smile. But how are they going to do that if they can't go to school? Scientists say climate change made this flooding more intense. And it's largely impacted poorer folks in Pakistan who've done the least to cause it. Mala tells me she's only ridden in a car once on their wedding day. U.N. negotiators pushing for loss and damage funding argue that post-disaster aid comes at the whim of donors. So far, a U.N. appeal for Pakistan has brought in only a third of its goal. And when aid comes, it can be slow, which means that an initial disaster can cascade into massive health and economic problems. Five of Abdul Ghani's brothers and their families are sheltering in the school now. Ghani's niece, 12-year-old Fatima Mala, now sleeps in a classroom a few doors down from where she used to be in second grade. Where was your desk? She and a few of her cousins in the same class point to spots in a room where an aunt and uncle now sleep. English was one of Fatima's favorite subjects, and she shows hers off to me. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, N, S, She says she likes it here because she plays a lot with her cousins. They tear through the courtyard playing tag while I visit. But Fatma says she really misses school. Her mom, Shazadi Mala, says it's true. She cries and says, bring back my books. 
But we can't because we don't have money, Shazadi Mala says. We can't even eat three meals. How can we buy books? The family is down to two meals a day. The cow whose milk they used to sell is tied up in the school's courtyard under a line of drying laundry. All the cow's grazing land is flooded, so she's not producing enough milk for the family to sell. The places where Abdul Ghani used to work as a mason are all flooded too. No, he... He shows me the nets he just bought to start fishing the floodwaters. It's hard to tease out how much climate change contributed to the losses suffered by Ghani and his extended family. Warming made the rains more intense here, but other factors also drove the damages, like development on floodplains, inadequate infrastructure, and a lack of good warning systems. Ghani tells me he didn't know the floods were coming until water from breached embankments arrived at his house. The difficulty of attributing damages to climate change is part of the reason that until this year, no national government had pledged money for them. But as climate-fueled catastrophes have started to accelerate, that has started to change. For The World, I'm Carolyn Beeler in Dadu District, Pakistan. Carolyn won this year's Covering Climate Now Journalism Award for short-form audio for that piece. When I spoke with her, I asked her to tell me the backstory of the reporting in Pakistan. I went to Pakistan in November of last year when the COP climate conference was happening. And I went very intentionally at that time because I knew that Pakistan would be raising the call and leading the charge to create a fund for loss and damage, loss and damages at this climate conference. And, you know, I knew a lot of journalists would be at the conference itself doing great coverage of what was happening there. But I wanted listeners to understand what the real stakes were for people on the ground what loss and damage actually meant and what that felt like, specifically in this story, for one family. So while I was in Pakistan, I was keeping an eye on the news that was coming out of the COP climate summit and reporting some of that, uh, but tying it in really to the lived experiences of people on the ground. Yeah, and this is really striking because I think those climate negotiations can feel very distant and kind of esoteric, even though they are, of course, dealing with issues that are facing people every day. And so being able to connect that to this experience does, I think, for a listener, help them understand. So these floods were horrific, extraordinarily damaging. If you could tell us, like, what would be a connection to loss and damage at the climate conference? Like, what might be a solution or something that could help families like this if that was actually being discussed at at the COP conference? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the primary objective of me doing this reporting was to actually just show what loss and damage means on the ground to to families. So this is like very early days for the idea of this fund, and it is not at all clear how money might be distributed. But in this case, this family lost their house and they lost wages for several months. So would there be a way that money could flow from, for example, the global north or historical admitters into Pakistan and get right into the hands of these families to be able to rebuild a house or make up for lost wages, things like that? Again, that's the idea that some people are talking about with loss and damage, but it's very political. There's um, a lot being discussed, and it's not at all clear how that money might flow. Another difficulty that I think I pointed to in this story is that how much of a, a disaster is fueled by climate change? How much is natural, a more natural, less man-made event? How much have been able to be prevented with better early warning systems? So another another problem with following the money from any sort of loss and damage fund into the you know hands of a family like this is exactly how much of their house being destroyed was because of climate change versus quote unquote normal flooding or early warning system things like that. Yeah, and it's interesting. We had an interview uh, recently um, with someone from the Union of Concerned Scientists about the increasing ability of scientists to actually parse out that data. It's becoming a really interesting field where they can say with more specificity, this, you know, this hurricane was amplified X amount by climate. And these emissions even came from this particular sector or a particular area, which is which is really interesting. So I do want to note for listeners that that fund, there was a success last year at COP27. There was a fund for loss and damage created. However, it has yet to actually be funded. Money has not transferred. So climate is a, is a natural and, of course, embedded part of the environment, which is your coverage area. But it intersects with so many other areas as well. How does climate appear in the stories that you report all across the world? 
Yeah, so I'm the environment correspondent and editor, so I'm kind of the the most visible person who covers uh, climate change. But it is part of a lot of the stories that we do. So most of what I do these days is climate coverage. So I was in Pakistan in November uh, reporting on these floods. Uh, I've been to Antarctica reporting on glacial melt there. I've done post-disaster reporting, looking at climate resilience in places like the Caribbean island of Dominica. So, you know, a lot of my reporting around the world is really focused on, on climate, the human impacts of climate, adaptation, mitigation, things like that. But I'm proud of the coverage that we do that I don't do. <laughs> the fact that we have really worked hard to integrate climate coverage into all of our reporting. So we have reporters based all over the world, and they all do climate stories. They all do stories that have to do with environmental science or climate impacts because we acknowledge uh, and understand and want to share with listeners that climate change impacts every facet of life, not just what you think of as, quote, environment stories. Yes, exactly. Right. Earlier this year, you did some reporting from Ukraine, both on the war there itself and on the environmental fallout of that. Tell us a bit about what you saw and heard reporting there. Yeah, if you want to focus on the environmental fallout, I was reporting in June on this topic. And it's one that I think doesn't get a ton of coverage because a lot of the more uh, immediate and, and frankly, devastating impacts of the war are so front of mind. You know, obviously, we should be thinking about loss of life, livelihood, and and property first, especially loss of life. But the environmental impact of the war is one that's going to be around for decades to come. So some of the main impacts are that, especially early in the war, Russian hits were targeting industrial sites, things like oil depots. And so you had just tons and tons of industrial chemicals and oil that leached into the groundwater uh, and soil. So I visited one community outside of Kiev where a giant oil depot was hit. It burned this black, thick smoke for five days early on in the war. And then a couple months later, residents of the closest village noticed that this lake that they used to visit to swim at and sunbathe by was was being covered by oil. So that's just one example of how that can impact one community. People there do do drink water out of wells. And that, that area with the lake used to be a, a, a fun spot for recreation and was no longer. I also saw a place in a national forest outside of Kiev where a Russian missile that had been intercepted and exploded before it hit the ground um, landed. And even though it had been destroyed, you know, mostly before it hit the ground, you know, there's this big ring of forest that was burnt to a crisp. It looked like charcoal and you could still smell this jet fuel that had leached into the ground after that happened. And that was just this one tiny, tiny example of how forests all around the country are being decimated. If you think about the front line is like 600 odd miles uh, stretching uh, along the eastern border of Ukraine. And and there's this old school trench warfare there that is digging up forests, ripping up forests, creating forest fires everywhere. So that is having a big impact in forests and also not protected areas around the country. You also traveled to Norway on that trip, if I'm not mistaken. So what what were you doing there? What were you reporting on? Norway became the biggest exporter of natural gas to Europe in 2022 as Europe tried to wean itself off of Russian fuels and also Russia cut supplies of, of gas heading to Europe. So Norwegian gas exports increased about 8% in 2022. Their oil exports are expected to increase about that much, maybe 6-7% this year. Um, so Norway has stepped in as a reliable source of fossil fuels to Europe and increased their expansion, um, you know, not a huge amount, but not an insignificant amount either. And so I was reporting on that there um, and, and really looking at this idea of whether the increased demand for their fossil fuel products and increased, you know, higher prices might increase production far down the road, not just in the the near term while Europe really needs those those additional fuel sources, but whether this will trigger investments that will lead to more exploration and then production, you know, for decades to come. So there are Green Party members and environmental activists who are really concerned that 
the high prices and investment now will lead to a lot more extraction 10, 20, 30 years from now when the world needs to be burning almost no fossil fuels in order to reach uh, net zero and, and the climate targets that countries, including Norway, have signed on to. So I think I think the top line is that it's probably too early to say if Norway's long-term fossil fuel extraction will increase because of this war, but there is right now additional investment, including in exploration, that could lead that way. So Norway is an increasingly important provider of energy to Europe, and um, the way that energy is being talked about there has really changed, and the political conversation about it has changed a bit, and so there might be repercussions of that down the road. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to travel to some other places that are experiencing these effects of the war. Elsewhere in this episode, we talk with author and activist Naomi Klein, who was very critical of last year's UN Climate Summit, as we've called, you know, COP, known as a conference of parties in Egypt. What are you paying attention to for this year's upcoming conference of parties in the UAE? Yeah, I mean, the 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 challenge of these climate summits is that they are based on consensus and you have countries from the Marshall Islands to giant oil and gas producers like Saudi Arabia who are trying to agree on something. So you're you're never going to get giant steps forward. So far we've seen, you know, very incremental progress on a problem that needs very rapid progress. However, they are the only only place that you know, international climate policy gets made. So they are, you know, As flawed as they are, they are a place where everyone comes to the table and has to talk about these things. Um, So this this upcoming COP, I think, will will also have a lot of challenges being hosted by a major fossil fuel producing company. We've seen a lot of um, potential conflicts of interest in the leadership of that COP. So I will be interested to see what, if any, you know, sort of real progress comes out of that meeting. Also, again, this year, I think, you know, it'll be important to see how civil society activists are are treated, you know, freedom of the press, etc. Carolyn Beeler is environment correspondent and editor at The World. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us on Climate One. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. On this Climate One, we've been talking with award-winning climate journalists Carolyn Beeler and Naomi Klein. This episode was produced in collaboration with Covering Climate Now. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be awkward and difficult and exciting, and talking is critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. You can help us by giving us a rating or review. It helps people find our show. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. You can also go to climateone.org and create and share playlists. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Greg Dalton is our host and executive producer. Brad Marshland is senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wincy Sheda is development manager. Ben Testani is communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Ariana Brocious. <laughs>